Ladies and gentlemen, a very quick word from one of our sponsors. The opportunity cost of reading a book isn't really the $30 price tag. It mostly consists of the hours of time you invest in reading it, hours which you could spend in other ways. But how can you know ahead of time which books are really worth it? Well, to help me triage which books to read, I often use Blinkist. Blinkist is an app which takes the key ideas and insights from over 4,000 nonfiction bestsellers in more than 27 categories and gathers them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand their core ideas. Blinkist has also extended their philosophy of less is more to long podcast episodes, presenting the key learnings from famous shows like Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History in 15-minute shortcasts. To discover this world of blinks and shortcasts, head to blinkist.com swagman. You can get 25% off an annual subscription, and you get to try Blinkist Premium free for seven days. So go to blinkist.com swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. It is great to have you back and what a thrilling conversation we have in store. A couple of housekeeping items before I introduce it. First, I want to proactively apologize to you if you reach out to me by my website or Twitter and I'm unable to respond. I do endeavor to reply to everyone, but it's not always possible. And lately I have had a lot on my plate. So sorry if I'm not able to get back to you. The upside is that I have an exciting project that I'll be announcing in the next month or two. So stay tuned. Second, if you have a friend who's interested in ideas and enjoys having theirs challenged, please share the show with them. I'm trying to corner the market for contrarians in Australia. And if current listeners of the Jolly Swagman podcast are anything to go by, we have one of the smartest and most open-minded audiences, not only in Australia, but also arguably in the world, given so many of our listeners live overseas. So if you're anything to go by, then we want your friends on board as well. Please let them know about us. This episode is principally about two topics, climate change and technological progress. Until now, I've avoided running an episode on the topic of climate change, and that was for two reasons. First, this show is not a perfect menu of the world's problems. I try to create marginal value by exploring topics that I think sit at the intersection of being important and being underserved. And while climate change is an important question, it's certainly not a neglected one, and I probably wouldn't achieve much by adding my meager voice to the din. But second, my eyes tend to glaze over whenever anyone talks about climate change. My basic attitude is that regardless of the accuracy or inaccuracy of climate models, regardless of the sometimes strategic miscalculations of the environmental movement in over-egging things, the experiment that we're currently playing with the only planet we've got is asymmetric to the downside. And moreover, we're going to have to move to sustainable energy eventually, so let's just get on with it. In this episode, I get around that second problem by trying not to ask cliched questions about climate change and trying to keep things interesting. And I get around the first problem by acknowledging that technology has come leaps and bounds in the last several years. And I don't think that fact is as well understood as is the challenge of climate change more broadly. So there is the opportunity to add some marginal value by promoting the fact that technology has come so far. This episode is also about technological progress. I discuss with my guest the stagnation hypothesis, the notion that since the early 1970s, technological progress has slowed, except for a narrow cone of innovation in computers. Stagnationists focus on the supply side, and their arguments stand in contradistinction to the secular stagnation hypothesis revised by, revived by Larry Summers in 2013, which focuses on the demand side. To put things crudely, demand-side secular stagnationists say that there's not enough money. Supply-side stagnationists say that we're not inventing enough new stuff. This may seem counterintuitive to you. Most people probably accept the assertion of the former president of MIT in the journal Science in 2018. Quote, never has the pace of discovery been so rapid, the range of achievements so broad, and the changing nature of our understanding so revolutionary, end quote. And indeed, leading stagnationists like Peter Thiel and Tyler Cowen have recently hinted that the great stagnation may be coming to an end. So these words could be obsolete even as I'm speaking them, but let's at least understand their basic contention. Now, 
It's important to stress that their basic contention is not that there's been no innovation since the 1970s, which I think is a point that got somewhat obscured in the following conversation. Their claim is that the rate of change is decreasing, that progress is slowing down. So it's a big claim. What's the evidence? Well, we could talk about things like the stagnation in real wages seen in places like the United States and Europe since about 1973, or the disappointing total factor productivity growth the West has been experiencing recently, or evidence that new scientific ideas might be getting harder to find. We could talk about how mismeasurement of inflation explains some but not much of the economic slowdown since the 70s. But instead, let me paint two pictures. Both of my paternal grandparents were born in 1919. Both are now past. Both lived extraordinary lives and both lived in extraordinary times. In the first 50 years of their lives, my grandparents saw flushing toilets, the arrival of radio and television, the expansion of electricity and heating, the dawn of air conditioning, washing machines, dryers and refrigerators, the arrival of air travel. They saw infant mortality plunge and life expectancy leap forward. In contrast, here's how the late, great David Graeber described the second period from about 1970 onward. Quote, As someone who is eight years old at the time of the Apollo moon landing, I remember calculating that I would be 39 in the magic year 2000 and wondering what the world would be like. It seemed unlikely that I'd live to see all the things I was reading about in science fiction, but it never occurred to me that I wouldn't see any of them. The common way of dealing with the uneasy sense is to brush it aside. Oh, you mean all that Jetson stuff, I'm asked, as if to say, but that was just for children. But even in the 70s and 80s, sober sources such as the National Geographic and the Smithsonian were informing children of imminent space stations and expeditions to Mars. In 1968, Stanley Kubrick felt that a movie-going audience would find it perfectly natural to assume that only 33 years later, in 2001, we would have commercial moon flights, city-like space stations, and computers with human personalities maintaining astronauts in suspended animation while travelling to Jupiter. End quote. Or, as Peter Thiel puts it in a nutshell, we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters. But you should make up your own mind on the topic, and I recommend the following books. The Great Stagnation by Tyler Cowen is a classic, as is The Rise and Fall of Economic Growth by Robert Gordon. For a different perspective, you can read Fully Grown by Dietrich Volrath, The Second Machine Age by Eric Brynolfsson and Andrew Mac- McAfee, or any relevant academic articles by Joel Mockier. And now to our guest. Our guest needs no introduction, at least in Australia. He was a journalist, a lawyer, a merchant banker, and a venture capitalist before becoming Australia's 29th Prime Minister from 2015 to 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, he is also a return guest to the show. Without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the great Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull, welcome back to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. So, 26th of April, 1937, the Germans unleash a torrent of bombs on the Basque country town of Guernica, and in the wake of the carnage, Pablo Picasso paints one of his finest paintings, also called Guernica, depicting the terror and the destruction of those events. 11th of September, 2001, the modern age begins with a bang as two planes plunge into the Twin Towers in New York City. Where was the great artwork? Uh, well, that is that's a that's a good question. I think that is a that's that, that a few people have asked that question. I'm not sure what the whether there have been any great artworks prompted by that um, disaster. I'm sure there's been a lot of representations of it, but possibly nothing to quite equal Picasso's work. Is that a characteristic of our age? Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think so. Um, sort of you wonder whether an artist could ever do justice to the actual event which people saw you know they we you know we all saw it i saw it live happen you know i mean i um television was on at home late in the evening and um we saw the um we saw the second plane fly into the building so, 
um, I think it's uh, I think that event but not just the fact of the event but the the image of it uh, is seared into everybody's memory that's a good point that if there was high definition video of the bombing of Guernica Picasso might have had a harder task well it's it's difficult you see that you know uh, the bombing of a city terrible though it is is hard to capture in one frame but the and you know this in a way is where the the attack on the World Trade Center was so calculated um, you know this was the propaganda of the deed and it was it was something that it was um, so visual so literally a frame in one picture uh, yeah I mean it was it, it it had an enormous impact an enormous impact because it's because the the scale of it the dimensions of it if you like visual dimensions of it were discreet whereas you know the um, the bombing of a city is a is a series of of um, you know uh, explosions buildings deaths fires you know it's a it's a series of things mm. perhaps the the other you know uh, another horrific event which has got a dis- discrete visual scale in, in the picture obviously this gigantic in real scale is of course uh, an atom bomb explosion you know Hiroshima and Nagasaki in particular what do you make of the argument of stagnationists like Peter Thiel and Tyler Cowen and Robert Gordon that we're living in a period in human history where technological advancement is slowing down, the rate of technological change? So the thing that accounts for the slowing productivity growth and economic growth since the 1970s is that we've somehow picked all of the low-hanging fruits outside of a narrow cone of technological change within information and telecommunications. Well, look, I'm not familiar with their writings on this, so, uh, but, so I, you know, I've, if leaving aside what their thesis is, I'd say, however, that I actually think the pace of change is accelerating. So... Um, I wouldn't agree with that. I'm not sure whether that pace of change is going to result in improved productivity. Uh, you know, they're two different things. But um, certainly, if you define productivity as a measure of the amount of output you can get per worker, um, and, you know, which is obviously enhanced by technology and capital investment and so forth. Uh, I think that is certainly increasing in most areas, uh, but you know it's increasing to a point where you're getting you know very high levels of automation, which then bring raises the question of what happens to employment. So, if productivity growth isn't a perfect measure of technological progress, what sort of things do you look to to come to that conclusion that the rate of change is increasing? Well, just I mean, uh, b- being a an alert. <laughs> Uh, sentient uh, early adopter person I mean you know the um, let me give you a couple of examples if I had said to you if we had done a podcast 18 months ago and I had said to you you know what I reckon we are now at a stage where most of us can work from home and there's no reason why people have to come into office buildings like this Uh, everyone can work from home because we've got pretty much ubiquitous broadband uh, and, you know, process, you know, computers, processors are uh, got the capabilities to, you know, essentially do live video pretty much anywhere, uh, you would have thought that was a bit wacky or a bit ambitious or aspirational. Or maybe you wouldn't, but I reckon most people would have. Anyway, that's what happened. So, you know, that was, that's been a pretty big change. That's just one. Um, I think the, uh, you know, generally, the in my experience, technology 
advances faster than our capability to imagine its use, you know. Uh, so, so, you know, my old partner in Aussie Mail, Sean Howard, used to say, we've always got plenty of technology. The problem, well, what we're often short of is technological imagination. So I take that example of working from home and the technologies that are facilitating that, but you can look at countervailing examples like the fact that air travel hasn't become any quicker since the 60s or the 70s, the fact that in some parts of the West life expectancy is actually deteriorating. Hmm. There are lots of examples yeah, but of... The, but you see, but, but can I just make this point, though? Sure. This is where, just see, it depends what you mean by technological progress, right? So, um, you know, people can do things that uh, they couldn't do before. I mean, if you call technological progress... If you define that as being technological changes which enable, you know, things that couldn't be done before to be done or to be done more efficiently or quick, more quickly and so forth, well, you know, you can make a case that the motor car uh, has had some very adverse consequences because it has resulted, sure, it's given a great deal of mobility, but it's also resulted in cities being more spread out it enabled the suburbs to develop instead of denser development uh, with all of the negative consequences that has had for social isolation and so forth. Um, it's also resulted in people walking less. And so you talked earlier about, I think you were referring to obesity in the West, uh, uh, that, you know, it's obviously given rise to that. So, you know, just again, just because you've got a technological change does not um, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing. I mean, you know, the, the fact that I have a remote that I can change the channels and sound and so forth on my television without getting up off the couch, is that technological progress? Well, let's say it is. But I might, have, I might be healthier if every time I wanted to change channels I had to stand up, walk over to the TV and turn a knob. So, you know, I mean, not all technological change has you know great outcomes um for well-being well for well-being well i mean mm. you know was okay was gunpowder a good idea question mark um you know was um well you know you go on i mean there's mm. so many there are so many examples uh you know i think the you see the question of what is progress and what is good are in large part moral judgments. They're very subjective judgments. And, you know, very advanced technology uh, can be used for very good purposes, you know, uh, cheap, uh, affordable, efficient uh, video cameras can be used to keep an eye on a sleeping baby to make sure it doesn't, you know, uh, stop breathing or... You know, it's to monitor it, monitor its health. Uh, you can use that as a baby monitor, or it can be used to monitor a whole population and keep them in a state of subjugation. I mean, Herbert Hart dealt with this in, um, you know, many years ago after the Second World War. He wrote about the concept of law, and you know, you cannot get away uh, from, you know, the the, the moral. Uh, aspects of it. I mean, there are many laws which have no inherent moral component. I mean, there is nothing moral or immoral about whether we drive on the left or the right-hand side of the road. What is immoral is to drive on the right-hand side of the road if by doing so you make all the people who are driving on the left-hand side of the road, you know, at risk of having a head-on collision. Mm. So, you know, it's a... It, they're, they're, the law and technology overlap with morality, but they, you know, they, 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 it doesn't, better technology does not necessarily mean it's better in a moral sense, you know, a, a, or any more than skills or intelligence do, you know, the most 
um, you know, a skilled, a really skilled carpenter can be making, you know, a house for people to live in, a cradle for a baby to sleep in, or it can be making a guillotine to execute, you know, enemies of the tyrannical regime he serves, right? So. But I think to the extent that technological advancement is one of the biggest levers driving economic growth, we mm. can say that in the long run, sustainable economic growth is a good thing. Yeah, I, well, I think it's sustainable. I mean... That's the key word. Yeah, sustainable is the key word. Uh, and economic growth, as long as its outcome is equitable and as long as it gives greater opportunities you know, for people to <clears throat> realise their dreams, ambitions, you know, destiny, however you want to describe it, self-actualisation. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, of course. I mean, the critical thing is um, sustainability, as we're now becoming increasingly aware. Yeah, and I'd like <clears throat> to, to ask you a couple of questions about that, but I just want to kind of finally come back to this point of the rate of technological change um mm -hmm. and we've we've spoken about mm. a few examples on either side of the counter but i think the the argument of the stagnationists like peter Thiel and tyler cowan and i know you said you're, you're not familiar with their work so i mm. take that well i'm familiar with who they are but i'm not uh, sure sure so maybe maybe you're vaguely familiar with the sort of great stagnation argument that peter Thiel has been banging on for about for a number of years that we're not experiencing as much change as we think we are. There's this sort of narrow kind of progress in IT and mm. computer science, but everything else is slowing down. And and so the just to tie that off. But the, compared to when? And compared to what? I, I mean, guess compared to that period of like nineteen twenty to nineteen seventy. Well look, I, I listen, I'm not gonna argue with the proposition that uh change does you know change does not technological change does not occur in a strictly linear fashion i mean very few it's things bunched. do yep. yeah and you get you know it gets lumpy and and events you know the for example the you know the rate of um video conferencing adoption of video conferencing as a means of you know meeting and engaging communicating has you know went through the roof because of COVID, right? That was probably always going to increase, but it's went through the roof. Uh, and that's, you know, that th those kind of changes occur. I mean, I look, I think, yeah, yeah I'm okay. Well, let's say he's right. So what? What does that, so what? When change, let, let's assume that technological change occurs in, in fits and starts. I mean, let's assume the the graph, the line on the graph is, you know, is um, is a bit jagged, but the trend is, you know, heading inexorably heading upwards. I mean, we haven't had a sort of a, a downturn like you did after the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, where techno techno technologies were, you know, in, often, very often, f forgotten. I think it and matters. Abandoned. Mm. Sure, sure. I think it matters because you don't want to be overly pessimistic or overly optimistic. Both sort of converge to doing nothing. So knowing where you are on that curve is really important for knowing whether you should be doing more. And if if everyone kind of believes that narrative of techno-optimism, then maybe a lot more people are tempted just to sit on a couch, crack out the popcorn well, look, okay. and let, watch let, let the me, future unfold. Right, let, let me give you some examples. Um, so if you accept that global warming is our biggest, you know, biggest existential threat, then the question arises, how do we generate all of the energy we need without cooking the planet? And, you know, that, to be honest, that looked pretty hard 10, 20 years ago. Uh, but now... It's actually quite clear how you do it. I mean, you, 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 this doesn't answer every aspect of emissions abatement, but the fact is we can generate all of the electricity we need with uh, renewables, with solar and wind, um, and we've 
if you plan the firming and storage right, you can back it all up. You do that with batteries and pumped hydro. I mean, just, there are other, other opportunities, but it's all doable. It is now absolutely doable. And in fact, if you plan it correctly, you'll end up having more electricity at a lower price. Then you electrify your economy so that you don't use, you know, uh, gas, you know, gasoline, I should say. For motor cars, you, you know, use, you know, uh, bat, you know EVs or maybe hybrid, hybrid, uh, hydrogen uh, fuel cells. Uh, the, all of those uh, techniques are available to us. So, you know, that's, now that, that's a function of, of technology. Now, in, in the solar case, the, the actual photovoltaic module, the core of the solar panel, its cost per watt's come down by over 90% in the last decade, but also all of the other costs, you know, manufacturing, shipping, assembling, all of that has improved as well. So that's, uh, you know, that's a good example of that. Some, you know, large improvements in the energy efficiency or productivity of wind as well, but not to the same extent. That's a more mature technology. I think, you know, I think there are some areas of tech where the you know the the scale for big improvements you know sometimes you know quantum <laughs> improvements literally are available in others you know you say well you know is our tech for building bridges going to improve yes undoubtedly but is it going to, is it going to be you know in 10 years time will we will be we will we be able to build a bridge for you know, twenty percent of the cost we can build one today. No, the reality is no, mm. because a because there's a you know substantial labour component, and that's you know always going to be there, and b because there's a certain physicality. I mean, it's a, this is probably this is not a technical term, right? So don't <laughs> don't, don't <laughs> take it out too often. But this is the way I get my head around these things. When I was you know, I used to spend a lot of time thinking about things like water uh, and uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, and you, I, I realised I had a really good insight years and years ago, which is that where you've got anything that you're doing that has a high level of what I call physicality, which in practical terms means, for this purpose, concrete and steel and energy... It's all you know. It's it's going to be very hard to get the costs out of that. So you take water, water, a thousand liters of water, which Sydney Water will sell you in your bathtub for you know two dollars thirty or something like that, delivered to your home. A uh, thousand liters is a ton in weight and a cubic meter in volume. Now there's not if you think about it, there is literally nothing else you can buy a tonne of for $2.30, let alone a cubic metre of anything for $2.30. And yet that's delivered to your, as I said, to your bathtub. And if you're a farmer, obviously, you could only afford, for irrigation purposes, only afford to pay a few pennies. So what that tells you is that water has a very low value to volume and to weight. And that means it costs, it's always going to cost a lot to move it around relative to its value and a lot to store it unless you have you know some you know uh, fortunately um, uh, designed uh, topographical feature you know like Warragamba Dam you know a, a long deep valley with a narrow neck and you can effectively put a plug in the end of it and back mm -hmm. up a lot of water so anyway bottom line is as a consequence no matter what the tech, large-scale water projects uh, cost a lot of money and are very rarely economic. If they're, you know, particularly so when you get crazy people, you know, shock jocks like Alan Jones and others who say, "Oh, we should build a pipeline from the Kimberleys to Melbourne," you know, this is, and you know, because they think it all goes downhill naturally. Of course, from top of Australia to the <laughs> to the bottom has to go downhill. Um, the, um, which of course it doesn't, <laughs> interestingly, but anyway, that's another question. But the point <laughs> is, it's, 
Yeah, that can never work, right? That absolutely can never work. It's interesting. So I got very, got very interested years ago in desalination technology. And that, I mean, there are different techniques, but the most common one is something called reverse osmosis. And it basically involves pushing seawater through a membrane with very small holes in it that essentially keep the salt molecules out. That's essentially what it involves. And so you're pushing the water through there and you get, you know, the, you get the water that comes out is fresh water and the water that stays behind is, is brine. Um, anyway, uh, now the operation of those RO systems, reverse osmosis systems, keeps improving. And it improves so that the cost of the membranes is less and the amount of power you need is, is less, so that's still high. But, here's the but, you still need to build a big long pipe out into the ocean to collect the seawater. And you need to build another big long pipe out into the ocean to safely and sustainably dispose of the brine, which typically has twice the salinity of the seawater which it's being mixed in. You then have to get your desalinated water into your city's water system and typically the reservoirs that feed a city are not on the coast. They tend to be up behind the city in, on higher ground, in hills. You know, that's the typical sort of thing. And so that involves building more pipes and more pumps and more concrete and more steel. And so, you know, all of that uh, makes it expensive. So, so there are areas where you will get meaningful improvements in the cost uh, in technology but there are areas where the physicality of the process involved is always going to result it's always going to mean you know it's still going to be very expensive so uh, that's but that's just the nature of things I think social discount rates help us compare the interests of future generations with the generations alive today and a high social discount rate implies that we value the interests of future generations less low social discount rate implies that we value the interests of future generations a bit more than that and because they compound over time they can lead to wildly divergent outcomes depending on which discount rate you choose and when they're put into climate change models they can lead to very different optimal policies so for example nicholas stern back in 2006, had a very aggressive climate change policy because he used quite low discount rates, whereas William Nordhaus proposed more modest mitigatory policies because his discount rate was quite high. What, what do you, by how much do you think we should discount future generations? I honestly don't think about it that way. I, I, think, you, um, I think you've got to... Um, you, you know, you've just you've just got to be practical about this. I think we we owe it to our children and grandchildren to do everything we can to leave the world a better place and certainly no worse a place than one the one we found or we found ourselves in. So um, I, I don't. I think a lot of these sort of attempts to turn. Subjective political human judgments into mathematical formulae. I mean, they're they're fine up to a point, except that they're really of nobody of interest to nobody outside of academe. You know, you. But they do have big policy implications. Well, yes, well they do. But the, but the the real so so the real question is this. Um, you know, are you just kicking the can down the road in a policy sense? Uh, and creating a bigger problem, you know, for people in the future. Now, the argument, you know, there is there are all sorts of. I mean, the fundamental thing is just sheer selfishness and lack of altruism. That's obviously one. Uh, but there is an argument, and this is what William Nordhaus is sort of essentially talking about, which is that we can reasonably assume that the cost, for example, of mitigating climate change. 20 or 30 years from now is going to be less than it is today because of constant technological improvement. And, you know, that is... I'm very sceptical about that. I mean, I think you, 
you know, again, you've got to you've you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing makes sense from a political point of view, in the sense that you can persuade people to go along with it. But um, you know, expecting, assuming that you can, you know, wreck the environment in this generation on the basis that a couple of generations hence they can put it all back together. That's a very big assumption, very, very big assumption indeed. And so, you know, prudence tells you that you've got to do everything you can uh, to avoid environmental destruction now, in the here and now. But, you know, regrettably, uh, all too often, the, you know, the drive for, um, you know, economic, very short-term economic advancement is uh, overwhelming that. Spoken like a true Burkean conservative. Yeah, well, I suppose I am. A, I mean, I do. Yeah, I, I, I think, well, at least I know who Edmund Burke is. As I always say, <laughs> most people who claim to be conservatives in politics nowadays don't know the difference between Edmund Burke and Tony Burke. <laughs> I think the easiest thing to say is that the discount rate should be precisely zero. And so what does that mean? The interests of future generations should be valued equally to current generations. There's some good literature yeah, yeah. on that. Well, I, I mean, I, I would intuit, it, as a matter of justice, I agree with you there, but I can also see the argument. See, so look, there are two, okay. So you, you could argue that we should be more prudent about future generations' well-being because that's our altruistic obligation. That's kind of in part of our, should be part of our human nature uh, to look after your children, you know, try and, you know, nurturing, looking after your children and grandchildren is kind of, you know, dr drilled into our DNA in most cases. But I think there's also the thing that there is an assumption, you know, we shouldn't assume that future generations should necessarily be as well able to deal with these problems as we are, okay? Uh, and equally, I think the assumption that they'll be better able to deal with them, which is what William Nordhaus sort of argues, is, I think, heroic. So I, I, I'd be comfortable with a discount rate of zero, as you say. I think that's a good, sensible balance. But, you know, prudence and common sense have got to play a role here. Uh, you know, you, um, uh, you, you know, li we live in a time of enormous uncertainty and unpredictability. Uh, the a, a prudent person, a conservative person, takes care to look after the environment, uh, in this case, and does everything they can to ensure they pass it on uh, ideally better, in better shape, certainly not in a worse shape. Do you have a psychological model of climate change denial? I'm, I'm less yeah, interested that's, in... That's really interesting, yeah. The yeah. Answer, yeah. So, so, sorry yeah. to interrupt. Um, I'm, I'm less interested in the motivations of the fossil fuels industry because the, the pure self-interest is sort of obvious yep. there. Mm. But there are a lot of people for whom climate change denial is even contrary to their own interests... Well, look, I really, I'd be very interested in your views on this uh, and anyone else's views, everyone's views on it. I think it's one of the most interesting and disturbing questions we face. Yes, you're right. Obviously, if you own a coal mine, you want to sell more coal. Okay, I get that. That's, at least I don't agree with you, I understand it. But why has the political right, the sort of populist right, increasingly the populist authoritarian right, why have they adopted denial of climate change as a values issue? I mean, that is what is so puzzling because denying the reality of global warming is like denying gravity. Now, obviously, if you say to me, I don't believe in gravity, I can, well, you can't open the window in this building. Well, let's say you, you can, I could say, well, I invite you to conduct a real life experiment. You know, just, I'll just call the ambulance so he's ready to pick your pick you up at the bottom well i guess one's denial of gravity is so readily disproved and catastrophically disproved it's not an issue but 
Global warming, we have known about the physics of global warming for, what, 150 years? I think it's longer than that. And it is so obvious what is happening, and yet that denial is there. Now, is it, par is it just global warming, or is it denial of science and modernity, generally? I mean, it's not so long ago, when it's now the end of March 2021, a year ago, people were denying COVID was an issue. And they continued doing that for quite a while. You had people denying that wearing masks was helpful. I mean, obviously, if it's a virus that is spread, you know, with aerosols or, you know, droplets, large or small, clearly covering your face is going to be beneficial, may not, you know, be the whole answer. But I mean... People have been wearing masks to stop spreading disease for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Yet we had, it was as though you had one common sense, sensible measure after another was being denied. And, you know, now of course you've got people, you know, the anti vaxxers are out in force. So this denial of science is a, is very interesting. And I, I see, I do not, I honestly, uh, do not understand the way in which climate science has been turned into an issue of values or belief. Um, I can understand why you can say, well, you know, I, I, I don't support gay marriage because, you know, I've got a strong religious belief about it. Okay, I, mean, I don't agree with you, but I understand that, that I accept that. But why, why would you say you, you don't believe in global warming when it is clearly a physical fact and it's not even remotely con the fact of it is not even remotely controversial and shouldn't and, and really hasn't been for decades now I have my own little kind of pet theory okay. if I can That's share fine. it with you yeah please so there's a really interesting paper by a few Duke University researchers from 2014. I think the title is something like Solution Aversion, a Psychological Model of Climate Change. Uh -huh. Words to that effect, but I'll send it to you. Yeah. Um, and Solution Aversion is sort of a form of motivated reasoning. Back during the 1990s, when addressing climate change necessitated very heavy-handed market interventions, mm. this is, you know, before technology saved the day. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So there's nothing intrinsic to the concept of climate change mm. in other words to the problem that's inimical to mm. conservative or right of center ideologies but solving that problem mm. required solutions that were ideologically unpalatable mm. so as per motivated reasoning psychologically the easiest thing to do is just to deny the existence of a problem because then the need for a solution evaporates and so that's yeah. how it was kind of bootstrapped into existence. Yeah, well, this and there's, is what, yeah, this there's, is what Michael Mann sort of argues in his latest book. Yeah, exactly. So that's how I think that's phase one of how it starts. But then the really concerning thing is that, you know, now with renewables plus storage, um, we don't need new coal anymore. Yep. Um, and so solution aversion doesn't need to be the reason to deny climate change anymore but the problem is has it taken on a life of its own has it generated its own momentum when now it's just a symbol of tribal loyalty i i i think the answer to i think that's all of that's that's a very good explanation and i think your tribal loyalty point is a good one too but it is you know it is it is barking mad there's no doubt about that and the um you know the the well we talk about future generations i mean the reality is uh right-wing ideological opposition to taking action on global warming particularly in the united states has really held up the pace of global action you know and uh that's a you know price that we're paying starting to pay now and i think when we'll be paid in larger measures in the future, because as every year goes by, the cost of cutting emissions becomes less. It becomes more, I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever thought about 
say we move to a, a renewable energy world, mm. have you thought about the geopolitical implications of that in the sense that so much of the exchange economy is based on energy? On moving energy around. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a good point. Well, I mean, Andrew Forrest, of course, sees a big opportunity in um, green hydrogen and green ammonia uh, and shipping um, green energy around in in one or other of those forms. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, But certainly, okay, well, you know, here's a paradox, right? Typically, it's the right wing of the coalition parties in Australia who are most concerned about energy security, you know, and the fact that we don't uh, refine, let alone produce enough of our liquid fuels in Australia. Well, you know, one way to deal with that problem is just to get them out of the transport system. Like, if you had all of your, uh, you know, road vehicles, or almost all of them, running on, uh, on electricity and batteries, you wouldn't have a liquid fuel security problem, would you? I mean, or if you did, it'd be tiny by comparison. So, <clears throat> so you know, there's a... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that's, that there will be a big change. I mean, there are some parts of the world where uh, renewal, you know, renewable energy is not as abundant as it is here, uh, and maybe you know that's why you're going to need to have bespoke solutions everywhere. But uh, you know, frankly, the we you know we can we can you can see the future. I mean, it is, it, and I think for Australia, it is overwhelmingly solar plus wind, mostly solar and storage. And you know, one of the great um, insights that uh, Andy Blaker's is responsible for us just pointing out that opportunities for off-river pumped hydro. You know, you don't have to build a new gigantic dam mm-hmm. to do pumped hydro. Now, in Snowy 2, we're connecting two da- existing dams that happen to be 20 kilometres apart and 700 metres difference in elevation. You know, regrettably, there's a large mountain in the middle, hence the tunnelling cost. But... Um, <clears throat> If you if you want to do smaller pumped hydros, you can do bespoke ones. You just need two reservoirs, you know, ideally a couple of hundred metres or more elevation difference, and you connect them. And I, I you know, I think that's, I, I, you know, my big concern on the energy storage front is that there is not enough pumped hydro being built. I'm, I'm all in favour of batteries, but I think. Um, people are assuming that batteries are going to provide long-term seasonal storage, which I don't think they are likely to be able to do, at least other than that, a stupendous cost. I guess one of the key problems with solar is that you can't bring it in overnight, to paraphrase Gerald well, Ford. When the sun, when the sun, isn't, the sun <laughs> isn't shining, etc. Yeah. <laughs> but But you can't bring it in overnight in the sense that... Um, we can't we can't move to solar speedily oh we can well actually solar that that i I sort of disagree i mean you're right about overnight obviously but (laughs) but no i I think actually this is this you put your finger on a big issue so to build a new solar farm or indeed a new wind farm does not take very long you know if you had the approvals you could get a build a huge solar farm in less much well under a year because it's been commoditized you know it's like it's almost like ikea you know i i used to say you needed an allen key and a post hole digger and a cement mixer and you can put up your solar farm in fact you don't even need the cement mixer and <laughs> the uh and the uh, post hole digger because you you know there's a you know, the five, the guys at 5B, you know, have got that Maverick product, which is where the solar panels just roll out like a concertina. Yeah. So anyway, bottom line is it's pretty straightforward. To build a pumped hydro scheme it does take a lot longer, you know, typically five to seven years because you've got to, every site is different. You've got, you know, the specific to the topography, uh, there's 
often going to be you know environmental issues and of course you get back to the point I made earlier about physicality you know you are using steel and concrete you're digging tunnels you're building turbine uh, chambers you know under mountains and all of that stuff so so my concern is and I've been doing quite a bit of work on this with the International Hydro Power Association internationally my concern is that we are allowing variable renewables wind and solar to roll out at a great pace and they are uh, smashing the business model of the traditional thermal generators because for large parts of the day the electricity price you know goes to very close to zero um, and yet we're not getting on with building the storage now snowy you know was an exception but you know frankly if i hadn't been prime minister uh um it would never have happened you know that was very much i mean I'm, i've been around you know, I'm aware, I'm sufficiently self-aware to be aware of my idiosyncrasies, and that was a that was a very idiosyncratic, you know, decision of mine, and initiative of mine, which just simply would not have happened. And has any other big pumped hydro been established since then? No. So you know, frankly, we've got to get on with it because otherwise, we're going to find we've got. We're very short on um, on storage. So like you, I'd probably think of myself as a small L liberal, although I'm probably not big on, on thinking in labels. but yeah. um, Whatever that means, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm wrestling with the notion of freedom of speech. Obviously, we don't have a constitutional right to freedom of speech in Australia, mm. freedom of political... Well, there is a sort of... The imp- court has imp- found an implied freedom, freedom of political, political expression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but at least say, say in the United States context, that right sort of emerged in a very contingent historical context in which we didn't have the modern technologies that we have today. So there was no ability to kind of broadcast a tweet to the whole country, let alone the whole world. But now we live in a very different set of circumstances. And I wonder how we should grapple with that. And I'd just be curious to hear how you think about freedom of speech and well, it's limitations. Okay. Well, uh, well uh, there's a really great essay in the New York Times magazine uh, about six months ago by Emily Bazelon about this, which I'd commend to you and your listeners. But it, look, in, in a nutshell, the justification or the rationale for freedom of speech and, say, in the American context, the First Amendment, um, is that in the contest of ideas, the truth will prevail. In other words, let everybody tell as many lies and say as many crazy things as they like because in the contest of ideas, the sensible ideas, the true facts will emerge triumphant. Well, you know, is that right? Uh, We're drowning in lies, as Emily wrote in her essay. Um, I think a lot of our thinking about freedom of speech was premised on a certain degree of responsibility on the part of media and journalists and publishers. But you've only got to look at a lot of Murdoch's outlets, Sky News in Australia, their tabloids very often, certainly Fox News in America, to see that crazy falsehoods, conspiracy theories, lies are not solely the province of social media. You know, I mean, that mob that stormed the Capitol on the 6th of January were motivated in large part by their belief that Joe Biden had not in fact won the election and that he had rather stolen it from Donald Trump. Now, this was a lie, a huge, gigantic, you know, just massive lie. Uh, But that was pushed out and pushed out and pushed out and you saw the consequences. So, you know, we... We actually do need to have a debate about freedom of speech and responsibility. I'm in favour of freedom of speech and have been all my life. Mm-hmm. And I certainly wouldn't want to see government censorship. Sure. But I also think that we have to start holding people to account. Uh, you know, and I think, I mean, I'm surprised that there hasn't been a movement to discourage people from advertising on Fox News, for example. 
you know, in the United States. I mean, if I was an American, I would be feeling really abused uh, by that whole episode, by the, the way in which uh, lies were peddled and promoted uh, through a big, you know, television cable channel with uh, making billions of dollars uh, and the damage to the American Republic was enormous and remain and continues to be enormous. So, you know, you know, the, the, there's a, a colourful expression that Rudyard Kipling used to describe the power of media proprietors. He said they exercise the prerogative of the harlot, uh, power without responsibility. I've never quite understood how the harlot gets into this, by the way, but it's memorable at least. But the truth is that freedom of speech does not mean freedom from responsibility. And I think, you know, we, we have to... That's, this, this, is the, this, this is really what we need to be discussing in this context. You know, it's very uh, flip and glib to say, oh, it's social media, oh, it's Twitter, blame it all on Twitter. I'm sorry, Fox News is not Twitter. Sky News is not Twitter. You know, the, the Murdoch tabloids are not Twitter. They're mainstream media run by big companies making large amounts of money in many cases. And they should, they've got to be held responsible. And, you know, you don't have to theorise about division and social angst and stuff. I tender the siege of the Capitol, the assault of the Capitol exhibit on the 6th a. of January. That's Exhibit A. And that is, you know, that, that in its own way is even worse than 9-11. I mean, we talked about 9-11 earlier. Um, there were more people killed in 9-11, obviously. Uh, but in the assault on the Capitol, you, it, that divided America. 9-11 at least united Americans. You know, this, the, the internal divisions in the United States are staggering. And the idea that major news outlets would promote things that they knew were lies, literally lies. Just, I mean, there was, I mean, how many court cases were there? 60? 60 applications to courts, all of which found that there was no basis for saying the election had been fraudulent, and yet they continued pumping these lies out there, and so you ended up with mm. how many thousand, you know, people, some of them dressed more uh, creatively <laughs> than others, sacking the capital. And so, so the fundamental asymmetry we have to grapple with mm. is that it takes a lot less effort to spread a falsehood Correct. than it does to clean one up. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's it's the point. I, I made that in my book. And, um, Mediscare. Yeah, well, Mediscare. Yeah. Yeah, Medi I mean, so so the, how do, the, how do, you, well, how do well, we contend with that? The, look, uh, I think the answer is the lesson learnt is you've got to treat it like whack-a-mole. That's a and tough it, job. It is. No, it is very tough. It is very tough because the traditional... Uh, political wisdom was that if your opponents were spreading an outrageous falsehood, uh, just ignore it, let it go through to the keeper, because otherwise you give it salience. But in this environment, in this viral environment, you cannot assume anything, no matter how crazy, is not going to cut through to at least some demographic or other. And if you get a big lie targeted, as Mediscare was, at um, you know what they call uh, low information voters, which basically means people who are poorer, less educated, and very often older, uh, in marginal electorates, they will be the ones that get taken in. And that's exactly what happened in 2016. I mean, that cost us seats. There's no doubt about that. So did that falsehood change anyone's minds in Wentworth? No, because they knew it was ludicrous, right? How could the federal government sell Medicare, even if they wanted, like, there's nothing to sell? But, you know, in marginal seats in Tasmania and elsewhere, you know, the outer suburbs of, of uh, some of our big cities, it really did cut through. You know, again, I go through that in a bit of detail in my book, but it's, uh, but it's you know, there's a big lesson there. But it's also, again this question of how do you hold people responsible. In politics, I guess responsibility ultimately is, is accountability is delivered through the ballot box. With the media, um, you know, I wonder if it isn't going to need advertisers to take action.
Malcolm Turnbull, great to speak with you. Come back anytime. I will. Thank you. Thank you, sir. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Two things before you go. One, if you want to read the transcript or the show notes for this episode, you'll find them on my website, thejspod.com. Number two, please subscribe to the show. It means that you won't miss new episodes like this one, and it also makes it easier for other people to find us, and I would appreciate your help. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our dehydrated video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until next week, thank you for listening. Ciao.